Did you yeah. like this Spider-Man? I loved it. I freaking loved it. Oh, it was it was terrible. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want, to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you go check them out at the show's link, that's hired.com slash adventures in Angular, you can get double their normal hiring bonus. So instead of $300, you get $600 for signing up at our link. That's hired.com slash adventures in Angular. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Ward Bell. Hello. Alyssa Nichol. Hey. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Mike Hardington. Hello. Mike, you're not on every week, so I thought you might want to just take a minute and tell people who you are. Sure. I am a developer, developer advocate for the Ionic framework, basically... If you've ever used Ionic before, you probably have have seen my picture somewhere up online. But I just try to help people succeed and do as well as they can on mobile. Awesome. And we also have you as a speaker at Angular Dev Summit. So I'm just going to yes. call that out. Uh, you're going to be doing uh, some kind of demo with Ionic. Yeah, we're going to be showing showing some of the cool stuff we've been working on and all the all the fun new stuff coming up. Nice. Do you want to talk for a minute about what some of that cool new stuff is or what you've been working on lately? Sure. Uh, so recently inside of Ionic, we've been going through this investigative phase where we're looking into moving things into a more vanilla JavaScript kind of state. So moving things to a web component based architecture. Web component based architecture. What, what do you mean by that? So... Something that we noticed a lot throughout all the different frameworks, you know, Angular has components, React has components, Preact and, you know, has components as well. Uh, even frameworks like Ember, they have components. So all these different frameworks and uh, libraries out there all have this similar concept of, you know, what this reusable thing is. Like, here's a bit of functionality. Here's like a custom element that we can ship, and it's inside of a particular framework's API. And that kind of becomes limiting limiting because you build something in Angular, well, you can't get it to work in, say, Preact or even Vue just because the API compatibility isn't there. So we're looking to see... We've never heard we... of those two words you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, 
all of these awesome, uh, you know, other frameworks that are equally as fun as Angular. Blasphemy. <laughs> I lo- we love Angular still, but we want to see, can you make something that not only works inside of Angular, but also all these other frameworks out there so and also outside you? of a framework? Uh, well, you're going to have to tune into the, uh, <laughs> to the <laughs> Angular Dev uh, Summit uh, conference to uh, ah. find out. So one other thing I just want to clarify here, when you're talking about web components, you're not talking about the standard that Google's working on Polymer to clarify things around. You're, you're talking actually, about just the idea of components? No, we're actually talking about the web standard itself. Oh, okay. So it touches on a good point because one of the things that we constantly hear is that, oh, web components, you mean something like Polymer. Which is, you know, fair because that's one of the that's been one of the driving forces behind it. But Polymer is only one implementation of web components. They provide the polyfills to make sure everything works, but it's all in runtime. So something we have been pretty interested in is creating web components all at a build time. So that way, when it actually renders out, it's just static JavaScript at that point. So is this? I'm just curious then, what does it mean for us Angular folks who are pretty used to the way that Ionic just works with Angular? Sure. So if you're using Angular and Ionic right now, uh, when we start implementing some of this, some of these, you know, this experiments uh, in future releases, nothing really should change for you. A lot of it comes down to the possibility for using Ionic's components elsewhere. So if you're using Ionic and Ionic Angular, you know, everything pretty much stays the same. You get a little bit of a smaller payload size because of how we're uh, creating the components. But if you want to say use something like Ionic's components without any framework, maybe you're just making a simple form online and you want to have some, you know, a little bit of uh, nice UI and not have not have a whole framework to load that page up to load just that single form. You can start sprinkling some of these components in just using the standard APIs without any framework. So essentially, our current Angular as Angular developers, our current interaction with Angular becomes we're actually be interacting with an adapter, which is actually a, an adapter around where the functionality actually is, which is inside a web component. Something like that is should that be our mental model? More or less. So we're working on the wrappers uh, to make sure that the, everything kind of works. The way it would end up being is we'd have a single Ionic Angular package. Once that gets installed via NPM, everything that it needs to have the web components talk to Angular uh, would already be included as soon as you uh, bootstrap the entire app. Right. But as I suddenly put on and become a React developer, then I'm able to go get those same same user experience and all that other stuff because there'll be some way of interacting with, again, perhaps a React type adapter around around, again, those same web components so that I would be able to go that way if that was my preference. Is that, exactly. is that kind of the vision? Yeah, that's that's kind of the vision. And it's something that, you know may not seem, you know, may not be obvious, but that was kind of the idea when we first started Ionic. Way back in our commit history log, you you would see the directory structure actually having vanilla JavaScript, 
and then Angular specific directives or Angular JS specific directives and controllers. And then we had originally planned to do something with showing its age backbone and then knockout. Right. Right. Uh, and even Ember because mm-hmm. Ember, Ember is you know still pretty popular, but it ended up just falling kind of to the side when we, you know, we saw how productive we could be with Angular and how little of a, you know, API that is shared between all of those different frameworks. You know, fast forward to today, it's a much different story. Everyone's kind of converged around the same idea that components are a good thing. This is how we should be building apps. And so all the standards kind of just happen to align that components are, you know, web components are basically shipping everywhere, even on, you know, Safari and iOS. All the frameworks kind of have the same mental model of you build up your component and your entire app is just this tree of components. So it's easier to implement and it just makes more sense. No, I I mean, it makes sense to me. And of course, if, you know, putting my business model hat, it makes a a heck of a lot more sense for somebody who's trying to create a suite of controls, visual controls, uh, to be able to play it all. Do you think that it's like limiting us? Like, as developers and our creativity because it's kind of like it's almost like saying here are the only building blocks you're ever going to need and then we never try to invent anything else to solve the problems i don't know does it does it feel like that to anybody else is that just me i'm not sure i understand the question well because i i was just like looking through the components and i'm just wondering like i don't know like are like is it just an ever-expanding list that they're building or, sorry, am I still not making sense to you guys? You're raising an interesting question, Alyssa, which is to the degree that somebody creates a catalog or an inventory of, I'm going to, I don't mean to, uh, I'm going to call them widgets, just for lack of a better word. To what degree is that is that constraining our creativity? Is that kind of the question? Yeah, because I'm just reading through the components list, right? And I've got like lists, floating, menus, modals, navigation, popover, radio. And like, if you keep going, going, and you have this list, and you provide that, and we're using Ionic, then does that mean that like, I don't know, we're just breeding future developers to just not think out of the box and like only use, you know what I mean? Like, I get that, like, from all of like our historical, like years of experience online, we see like that these things have been working or people expect, you know, this behavior from these kind of elements. But I just, I don't know. Some, some part of me is like, like, is there a way with Ionic perhaps to build custom components that your company needs or something like, or is it just here are the, here's the list. That makes sense. So the APIs that we, that we're using to generate all these components, mm-hmm. it's super easy to just, you know, dive in uh, below that and have access to like the raw web component stuff. So maybe you wanted to modify, you know, how the radio toggle works, or maybe you just wanted to create something new and use the tools that we've created. Yeah, it's totally possible to just utilize that and have something a little bit more custom uh, tailored to, you know, your needs. Okay. So that's, that's good to know. Cause that was my first thought was like, what about the creative fun? So, <laughs> but yeah, no, we, we want to make we want to make sure that you know people who just need to get up and running and have a good set of uh, tools uh, can do just that. But for mm. the people who want some of the more fine grained control, we want to make sure that that's available to them as well. Very cool. 
Yeah, and I, I like the idea. I mean, this is one of the things that is always trying to be balanced, right? Is is it simple enough for somebody to pick up quickly, but yet um, have enough other options out there so that if people need to go deep and do something, you know, I guess more advanced or trickier or, you right. know, outside of the box, can we do that too? And it sounds like the answer is yes. Yeah, which is pretty great. much. That's awesome. <laughs> One other thing that I'm wondering, and you can answer this, I think, pretty quickly, but I know that web components are at least supposed to be rather performant. But at the same time, you know, you're talking about having a lot of this stuff built on web components as sort of another library. And I think, Ward, you'd use the word adapter. So if I have something that adapts to something else that adapts to something else that now runs Ionic, is that going to impact performance? In general, it shouldn't. What we're, what the end goal is that the code that is needed to run the web component would just be vanilla JavaScript. So it wouldn't be any heavier than any custom Angular component or any other code that you would write for your app. Uh, and it would run outside of a framework. So the context that these are would be APIs that are built into the browser. So generally, you would expect them to be able to run a little bit, you know, uh, faster because they're just default APIs. So the shim layer that we're thinking about would be, you know, as small as possible and just really set up so that way you could pass properties as inputs. You know, you could set up your event system using Angular's outputs. It would just allow for that extra layer to make sure that everything that Angular can do and it can send to a component and that component can emit out would still work inside of with a web component. You know, as I'm playing this in my head, you know, an Angular component has a, a, carries with it a lot of other capabilities that probably aren't relevant to a, a UI element. For example, all of its support for DI, all of its support for doing sort of tree, component tree walking and projections and all that stuff, which is really important as you're building up layers of an application, uh, component trees, and trying to weave services in and out. But that, if I'm a designer of a radio button, I don't need all that overhead, right? Exactly. And, and so, uh, and Ionic is, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your inventory here and, and you know, uh, I'm not injecting a surface into an alert or a radio, you know, or a button or something necessarily. Uh, so, and I'm not doing any kinds of con complex transformations of exterior templates into those. And so all of which is really useful for building application components, but not for here. So I would, you know, so I can see where you're going there that the, that the efficiency and simplicity of a web component um, implementation frees you from uh, having to carry the payload of a completely general application component framework such as Angular provides. Right. Is that, and is that where you're going? Generally, that's that's pretty close to on point. At your building time, like if you're building an app and you have the web component versions of all the Ionic stuff, you'll eventually get some of the additional APIs that Angular's app component uh, offers. You know, things working with uh, change detection, uh, content projection, and all the lifecycle hooks that come with it. But it's, but that makes sense for the application development, not for the controls. Right, 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 right. 
Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. And so you can free yourself, you know, as a as a vendor of a particular kind of of component with certain set of responsibilities, you can be free of all of the the, the generalities that burden that are both creative for us as application developers, but also burden the component in a in a general framework like an Angular and, and an Ember and all those others. Correct. Does that answer your question, Chuck? Does that sort of fit it? Mm-hmm. The other question that I wanted to ask, though, is that I know that people have used Ionic uh, not just to build mobile apps, but also to build progressive web apps. And so I'm I'm wondering, you know, does this translate all the way up to desktop browsers? Yeah, definitely. So it becomes even more useful to start utilizing some of these web components in, progress, in a progressive web app context because of the nature of, of web components being less code generally and more using the browser's own APIs, you know, loading can end up becoming a lot faster. Your overall pay, payload for for each chunk gets ends, uh, if you're doing lazy loading, ends up being uh, much smaller. So generally the smaller progressive web, uh, the smaller kind of limited network area users can take advantage of all that. And it would translate, you know, being even faster if you were to do something, say like a large desktop application. One thing that's not clear to me is, and you go to your homepage and it talks a little bit about native apps, and and then but then we got this progressive web app thing, and I'm really lost about the boundaries there and where where Ionic wants to play. Yeah, good question. Yeah. So where do we want to play between progressive web apps and you know hybrid well, native apps? Yeah, I mean, what are we looking at there? Is there a direction, tendency? How should we understand our choices there? So we understand that, you know, hybrid technologies such as PhoneGap or Cordova are going to be around because some people prefer native applications going the distribution model of going through an app store. But at the same time, there are people who just want to ship something, put it up on the web, and just have it accessible through a URL. So we want to try to cater to both parties and provide a kind of nice balance offerings for each. And it kind of leads to the four, one of the goals of these hybrid technologies like PhoneGap and Cordova is that at the end of it all, it shouldn't no longer be needed because the browser implements all the APIs that you know native uh, devices have. And we're kind of seeing that that trend, you know, we're kind of seeing that, you know, come to fruition with all the changes inside of, you know, not only Chrome, but, you know, uh, things that Safari and all the other Microsoft Edge, all the other browser vendors are implementing. Do you see a move away from the PhoneGap approach towards just pure, you know, towards PWAs or is that? Are you just saying we're standing back? We don't know how it's going to play. Or well, we actually we just released a, the numbers from a developer survey that we re- sent out, and while it it seems to be a pretty healthy mix between people who are who only want to ship a native binary versus folks who are extremely interested in doing progressive web apps and you know, not having to uh, deal with the native level. So is Ionic just to continue doing progressive web apps and kind of splitting the difference then? I guess we'll we'll continue pushing for the progressive web apps side of things, you know, pushing for progressive web apps. If native somehow if progressive web apps somehow seem to, you know, fall on their face and everyone starts abandoning 
them. You know, we'll still have Cordova in the background. And then, you know, if we want to ship like native desktop applications, we can start using things like Electron. So all we have many options available to us. Yeah, I don't have personal experience with the Cordova kind of phone gap approach, but I it was always you know, partly that's because I've always been afraid of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's good reasons to be. It's, you know, I I love the approach and the ideas behind it. But if you want to try to do something that's beyond what's out there, like if you want to create a new or use, say, a new API that's available, coming to iOS 11, there's like a an augmented reality API. If you wanted to do something with Cordova, but you there wasn't any APIs or plugins to help with that, you'd have to start writing some of the native code. And that's a really specialized task. So, I mean, it's really, it's understandable why people tend to shy away from it. Well, that's really, you raised an interesting question. Suppose I was really hot on uh, augmented reality. Mm -hmm. Is that something that Ionic is looking into or has, do you have some vision about how one could write such an app that made use of Ionic controls? I I actually don't know. I know that there is that we've seen a few people who have, you know, inside like a HoloLens or what's the one that's by HTC Vibe? He- yeah, the Vibe, some kind of headset that uh, you can start using augmented reality stuff or VR and augmented reality. People have been able to load the browser in there and use Ionics controls. And generally, it, it, it just works because it's all web technology. I think that's a really cool frontier. I'm not sure that everybody who's listening knows what augmented reality is. For Gosh, how would one say that in, a, in if an you wanna, pitch? If you want to put a web app on your couch, you can do that. Right. <laughs> I, I guess that would be the easiest way I could think of explaining it. Yeah, it's yeah. like having a psychotic episode in which you're hallucinating things over the couch. In the walls. <laughs> Have you ever seen Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? Yeah, something like that. It's like you drop something real, some really good psychotropic. <laughs> <laughs> Except yeah. it's you taking it you can, somewhere, and then and then and use it to perform surgery on someone. See, that's that's the turn right there. <laughs> have Have any of you used augmented reality, Hololens, or anything else? I've tried it. I've tried. Yeah, I've tried the daydream uh which has been pretty interesting i got to try hololens a couple of years ago and it was it was really exciting i have to say yeah i used hololens at a microsoft build this year and it's really come a long way they're actually i think they're selling or announcing hololens kits you can buy here in september but anyway it, what's really interesting is it's not just you see something on your couch or you see something in the room with you that isn't physically there, but it's also the ways that you can interact. So you focus on a particular point or object, and uh, then it calls up, you know, some interaction or some level of operation that you can do. And what's what's really interesting about it to me is that, so you you uh, walk into a room, maybe you have an IoT device or some other, you know, spatial setup that you do. Because some of them, it's you know, it's just relative to where you set it up to be. And so you see things in the room, but then you can interact with them. And so it goes beyond just adding things to your reality, but it also becomes a way for you to, you know, look more closely at things and learn things and interact with things 
you know, without actually having to physically build something up. And, and in, all in a three day three D space, which is also really interesting. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. You can replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files and having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. It has full support for JavaScript and all other major languages and platforms. It takes less than 10 minutes to set up and you can get a free 14-day trial by going to raygun.com and signing up today. And all the browsers are kind of coming along the idea that this should be an API available to work with, you know, so we have like web VR and web AR. So mm -hmm. kind of getting back to the Ionic side of things, like this is all going to be uh, totally possible to do. Right. Because I'm looking at your list of, of components and imagining how that would might fit. You know, what kinds of applications would I use? I would still need date pickers and things like that, you know. Just, mm -hmm. I'm just picking one out of the air. If I'm trying to, you know, in trying to integrate the reality with some kind of backend system I have that is in a more, that would customarily be seen as a traditional, like say, inventory management app. Can, I'm trying to imagine com combining my inventory management app with my augmented reality as I'm walking through a warehouse kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I can see it. I can see why that would be an exciting opportunity for for you guys. Yeah, but one other thing that I see with this is going, you know, well beyond that. So, you know, let's say you have a Nest thermostat in your house. So you use augmented reality to look at the Nest thermostat and then you just look at the turn it up or turn it down or you focus on the right. the, mm -hmm. the temperature you want it to be and all of a sudden your world reacts to the way that you used your AR. Right. Right, 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 right. Uh, and you still need those, and you still need those affordances to be able to turn that thermostat up and down, and that's again where where Onyx uh, could play. Yep. And just just to uh, kind of wet people's appetite a little bit, our guest next week scheduled is Aishigal uh, Yone, and she's mm -hmm. going to be talking to us about web VR and visualization. So if you're interested in this stuff, we're going to dig deep on it next week. Nice. So I think we hijacked the conversation <laughs> a little bit. But, you know, it's... Yeah, but it's a relevant part of the conversation on how Ionic fits into where things are going to go in the future. Right. It's not just like throwing a date control on your screen and moving on. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what if you could actually touch the date control? Yeah. Reach <laughs> into the future and <laughs> through the date picker. Yep. Were there other aspects of this that we wanted to dig into? I know we usually try and keep this to half hour, and that's about where we're at. I can't seem to think of anything. Do you want to just give us the, the two-minute intro to what you're going to be showing us at Angular Dev Summit? So I'm going to be showing off Ionic components across a multitude of frameworks and how you can take advantage of the tooling and that we have created to create your own custom components that utilize uh, that can work across any kind of framework that you want, and even without frameworks. Awesome. All right. Well, if there's nothing else, let's go ahead and do some picks. Are you ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day intense workshop class for individuals or teams. They cover Angular 4 and 2 and focus on the skills and knowledge you need for complex, data-rich applications. 
They also still offer AngularJS for teams supporting older projects. Bring them to your site or send developers to them in St. Louis, San Francisco, New York, DC, and other cities, and online at angularbootcamp.com. Alyssa, do you want to start us off with picks? Well, sure. I guess my pick is kind of boring this week, but it's what I've been doing with my life lately. So you guys know of like the uh, the app called Sketch? Maybe, maybe not. It's like a Photoshop replacement, except for it's like more for like SVG type dealios. So I've been doing a lot of comp work lately for my company and like UI UX stuff. And uh, there's like, I got like so good at the hotkeys that I'm like creating the comp with nothing but like the keyboard. And I'm just like, yes, I am God of sketch. So yeah. So I'm loving that app lately. So if you are a designer or front-end dev who uh, needs to do design work, check it out. Awesome. Joe, do you want to give us some picks? Yes, sir. I'd love to. So I just saw this, the movie Dunkirk, just this last last weekend. Oh, my gosh. Oh, you so, liked it? Oh, I oh, loved it. it was so You didn't boring. like it? Oh, so boring. Oh, you guys are so terrible. <laughs> Just so I, was, I was sitting through this one scene and like, okay, so my Wait, husband, we, me and him are oh, like, oh, we walked out of the theater and I go, did you like it? And he goes, well, for a movie without any words, it was pretty good. Like, <laughs> and that is so, pretty, right? and so many scenes where like, it's just this guy in a plane and it's silent and there's epic movies music. don't have to have wars <laughs> to be great war movies. Okay, maybe I'm just not a war movie genre person. So if you are, you should listen to Joe. I see. I see that I have been liberated at last from the Star Wars curse. We're going to just keep wailing on uh, Alyssa now on Dunkirk from now on. Do you like Dunkirk, Ford? I haven't seen it. I was actually afraid to see it because it's gotten really terrific reviews, but it looks like a long slog through death and gore. (laughs) <laughs> and, and the reality of war it seems so faith, probably faithful it, to it. And I'm afraid of that. that. Like, because I can't do gore. Like, I just cannot. That's when I bow out. So, like, in the Saw movie, like, that was me walking out of the movie theater. So it's nothing like that. But you're, it is very sobering. Like, there were very, a lot of moments where you're like, dang. Like, so. I've heard it's like another really good thing. What you I... want, Alyssa, is a Hollywood war movie. You want... <laughs> Planes exploding. You want the Death Star <laughs> shooting down on the planet. Uh, TIE fighter okay, so falling I, over. I, That's what you I want, which I get. Like, I love that. <laughs> right. And it's not realistic. I get that. Because, like, I'm a Marvel girl at heart. So, of course, whenever there's anything other than explosions every five seconds, it's not awesome. So, but no, so, I, I like Ward. I've heard that it was a good war movie for war movies. It Here's what I loved about it. One... It wasn't like the hall, the typical. In fact, I'm trying to think through. Was there like a line in the movie that's one of those? The cameras are on. You know the who's the guy that does the tra- Michael Bay? The wind's blowing in their hair. There's explosions in the background, and he says he rips off his sunglasses and says, "Looks like it's time to kick some ass." You know that's what you want. I don't. Okay. Just okay. At which point a sign me up rolls up and turns into a robot. Yeah. Yes. Right. So- to be totally horrible, there was a moment like that, but there just was no words, right? Like, that's what it was. You know, like, the captain, he's standing there at the end of the dock, and he's like, I'm waiting for the French. And then he, like, they keep sailing away, and he's just standing there, like, saluting them, and you're just like, that was the Michael Bay moment. So. That was the Michael Bay moment. 
So I like the fact that, you know, the slow pace was like it was almost just so tense. There was some very interesting filmmaking. For one thing, did you notice you never once saw the face of an enemy? Not a single time in the show. Like they're in the planes and they're shooting at people. You see they're shooting, but you never see who's shooting. In fact, I'm not even sure if they once said the word German. I'm not 100 percent positive. It was so it was about the people. Right. It was about the soldiers mm. trying to survive. And I think somewhat true to form with the actual event of Dunkirk, the actual event of Dunkirk took place over like 12 days. It wasn't this constant like we're, you know, in a nonstop firefight for 12 solid days. Right. There was lots of lulls in that and just sit, people sitting around waiting, wondering if they're ever going to get home. Mm. Uh, I like I thought it was almost a lot more realistic than you see in a lot of and authentic maybe I like that I didn't it's, it's not to say I actually don't I like some Michael Bay movies uh, and <laughs> I love Private Ryan for example but I don't know I thought it was unique and I thought the cinematography and I think that he did some very unique stuff that how it goes back and forth in time was sometimes a little hard for me to follow um, oh yeah I, critics love that critics love that so oh, I don't know do? maybe, maybe they love like weaving timelines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I liked it. I really thought it was great and a very interesting story about a very interesting part of World War II. Um, so I highly recommend you go see it. If you anybody whose last name is not Nichol. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. There, well, that that was a long trip. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> No, it's all good. I'm going to let Ward do some picks and then I'm going to be like, you like that? <laughs> Go ahead, all Ward. Right. What are your picks? Well, I just got back from bicycling, e-biking through Switzerland, oh which I cannot, I cannot recommend highly enough. Wait, like e-biking? Is that oh. like vaping? Or like VR? You had a VR helmet on exactly. and you sat on you just, your yeah, stationary right. bike at it, home. Exactly. You, you don't even do that. You sit in your couch. And Switzerland <laughs> make Switzerland come to you. Uh, <laughs> I like it. I'm all for it. And then you reach out for a beer and you're done. Um, or it could have been the way it actually happened, which is you fly there and you ride a bike for 11 days across 400 miles of the most glorious countryside. No, wait, like, you just ride seen. a bike. This is like a motor. It's a powered bike. Yeah. No, no, no. It's yeah. a, it's a, my no, it's my a butt bike. hurts just thinking about it. It's a, oh, well, I don't want to talk about your butt just yet. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, I will have more to say on this in future shows. But my, uh, therefore, I'm I'm plucking from that amazing trip a new guilty pleasure, which is a dish called Rusty um, R O with an umlaut S T I, which must have bacon on it to appeal to Joe and to me, and I <laughs> and has fried egg, and I'm putting a recipe in for it in the show notes. But it's really, it's really like potato, like hash, giant hash brown with all this goodness on top of it. You gotta, you gotta make yourself some like, rust. Can we, can we, can we get all the ingredients here, or is this like some magical thing that nobody's ever gonna be able to make? I put it in the show notes. I'm putting oh, a okay. bon appetit recipe for rusty with bacon and scallion. Yeah, but it is a traditional Swiss farm dish that will require you to go burn a lot of calories to get to get it off, but. It hits you, you know, you look at it and you say, I shouldn't eat this. Like so many great things. You look at it and you say, I really shouldn't eat this. And then I do. That's my pick. Nice. 
<laughs> well, I mean, it sounds like you needed like the, uh, the carbs and energy like on this trip. So not really, but yes. <laughs> awesome. All right, I'm gonna throw out some picks here. So this morning I picked up a book and I've read The Millionaire Next Door by T. Harvecker, but I didn't realize that he also had The Millionaire Mind, which is another book that talks about how millionaires approach things and think about things. And it's been really, really enlightening. I've really been enjoying the book. Um, is the uh, short version, they think, can I buy this? Yes, I can. Is that yeah, it? Yeah, let's hear the short version. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm rich. I could buy this. <laughs> it, it's, it's a book about mindset and it's a book about, you know, how you think about uh, different problems and think about, um, about money and, and about when you have, that you buy. When you, but it's, when you have money, no, it's, it, it also comes down to how you run your business and how you manage your finances and the way that people thought about things before they were millionaires. And it's it's really, really fascinating just to dig into, oh, okay, so these are the limiting beliefs that I have that are keeping me from becoming wealthy. And these are the behaviors that I've learned that I need to unlearn in order to, you know, achieve my financial goals. And it's it's really, really interesting just to just to look at and go, oh, I learned that from my parents and it's not a healthy outlook on things. Or I, I'm glad I learned this from my parents because it is a healthy outlook on things. So anyway, highly recommend it. So I've heard of these books. And one thing I always want to know is there's this uh, thing called the survivor effect, I think. Is anybody familiar with what I'm trying to, this concept I'm talking about? I'm yeah, liking where you're going. Survivorship bias. Yeah, survivorship bias. There we go. Do these books address and say, this book deals with the, uh, yes, the, this is valid because I have dealt with and analyzed the effect of survivorship bias and considering that this is still a valid book or is this, you know, because if you just simply, for those who don't know, survivorship bias is the problem in studies where you say, well, who's the winners? And you look at the winners and look at th things they have in common with themselves. And what you don't consider is all the pe things, people or whatever that had that same trait that didn't survive and didn't make it. And so therefore it actually, what they, what they pull out as a commonality turns out not to be any, you know, it's, it has no causation on the success of the thing. So, you know, like example, like yeah. a certain mindset on being rich, you might have a million people with that same mindset. It just so happens that the people that are rich also have that same mindset, but having that same mindset doesn't necessarily do anything to get you there, right? Like uh, being born into a wealthy family is definitely one of those things that uh, right. does matter where... So I was just curious if he talks about whole, that at all. It's thing of like correlation is not causation, mm -hmm. right? Right. Because, because lots of millionaires think that blue is the best color in the world doesn't mean that if you don't think that, you won't become a millionaire right. kind of thing. Yeah. So, so is, is he addressed that at all in, in this he, book? Because I'd hate to waste time and money on books that really have. So I'm not all the way through the book. I will point that out. Um, he has addressed some of it in some of the parts of it that you know the the first half of it or so that i've read um but yeah he he also for both this and his other book um interviewed a whole bunch of millionaires and and just talked to them about uh, a lot of it is mindset but a lot of it is also you know the behaviors that come out of that mindset that actually saved or made them the money and he he talks about um different people who changed their mindset and then were able to make more or in some cases, they were people who 
were making a lot of money and then changed their mindset to make even more money and just addresses a lot of those limiting beliefs and just realizing that, you know, thinking too small was what was hurting them. And in other cases, it was other things, other ways that you look at money or think about rich people or things like that, that, that help people up. And once they got rid of those beliefs, then they were able to move forward. So I, I think there's some of it. I don't know if you can directly completely address that though. So I don't know. I don't know if I have a good answer to that question, but uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that. If, if people have feedback on that, leave a, comment on the show notes and uh it'll be interesting to see if we hey, have a conversation about that can i kick in another pick then yeah go ahead so it just reminded me of something there's this book i've been reading i'm going to pull up the name of it here so that we have the name it's called everybody lies big data new data and what the internet can tell us about who we really are okay so it's a book about big data specifically, but it's about finding out about sociology and psychology and stuff using big data. Mostly he's he, the data sets that the guy uses are Google searches. To some smaller extent, he uses other data. He talks about other data sets for sure, but he talks about Google searches a lot. He wrote his PhD thesis on Google Trends and the data from Google Trends. And so what's interesting about this is he talks at the very beginning a lot about the fact that so much of psychology relies on what people say. And they lie so much, either knowingly or unknowingly, when so they true. say things like, for example, he talks about the election, the Trump uh, Clinton election, and how they what part of the thing that they do is they measure when they ask somebody who they're going to vote for, then they try to ask them how likely they, are, they actually are going to vote. Right. And those numbers are so skewed. So many more people say they will vote than actually do go and vote. Right. And so he actually talks about that, that they, there's these Google trends that they found in areas where there was high turnouts of votes that these particular types of searches showed up, right? And, even, and he even talks about using Google trends to try to determine who might be the more likely candidate to win the election uh, and ways to do that. It's pretty interesting. So, and, and he talks specifically a lot about things that normally couldn't be proven, like for example, to going back to your thing about the book, like in order to prove against survivorship bias, you might have to like, all right, these are the mindsets we found in common. Let's now go interview like a million people and see how many of them have had that mindset and how long they've had. And that would be like really difficult to, to actually go through it and do and prove and potentially impossible. But he talks about like certain scenarios that they thought could never be proven. And using big data and Google searches, you could actually potentially prove some of these things. It's very interesting but highly recommend it. Totally find it fascinating, especially from a computer science standpoint. So sorry to take, take the last, uh, normally you get it check. Today it's mine. No, it's last all good. <laughs> well, I'm throwing one. I'm throwing another one in to go on, uh, you know, to piggyback your <laughs> counterpoint. One upmanship. Which is, I saw a movie on the plane called The Founder, which is about how Ray, about Ray Kroc and how he aced out the McDonald's brothers. Talk about a, and it's, it explores the very question of this mindset. Anyway, and it's highly entertaining, and it's a subject of that I. Yeah, have, I did. I did see that movie. Uh, what did you think? You thought it was good. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was but, really. I thought it was really, a little cutthroat, but I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let Mike get some picks in. I uh, know he's out of time. all right so i recently just bought a house and now i'm dealing with the oh my god i have to maintain a home and not have a landlord fix everything so i've been looking up all of these random no non-programming like how to actually handle 
maintaining a house like what do I do if you know I need to re if I have like a leak inside of a bathtub so I found this site diymills.com and it comes with all these awesome like little projects one of them is you know perfect example if you have a leak at like a bathtub or something you know here's how to seal it properly how to properly put up christmas lights or how to create your own you know hd projector screen for you know an awesome basement if you you know want to create like an 80 inch tv screen but one of the things that it does have that i think is pretty awesome is a uh, kind of farm style kitchen table. So I'm going to be building this for the new home because I think it's freaking awesome and it looks so cool once you actually see it. <laughs> Mike, have you have you seen the money pit? Yes. <laughs> yes, I have. <sighs> for any new homeowner. It's it's yeah. I've been I've been warned about the trials and tribulations of owning a home and all the fun things that come along with it. Uh, other than that, definitely go see Spider-Man Homecoming because it was so good. Mm, that was good. Wait, there's a good <laughs> Spider-Man movie? They finally did it. Oh, I mean, other wow. than the first, other than the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man, which everyone knows will <laughs> always be the best pre-Marvel Spider-Man. Hey, Alyssa, <laughs> did you yeah. like this Spider-Man? I loved it. I freaking loved it. Oh, it was it was terrible. It was horrible. <laughs> Who are you? I just think we were like. Oh. I was so disappointed by this Spider-Man movie. I, I, I'm so sorry. All right, I'm gonna push this out. Uh, I'm sorry, Mike. I'm gonna end the show, guys. No, 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 I'm I so heartbroken. Hear, this one yet either. So now I don't like it. I was very disappointed by it. <laughs> go see Dunker. Don't go see Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, see, it was see. either between Dunkirk uh, oh, or oh, Spider-Man, okay. so uh, I, I went with Spider-Man. I want to see. So, the yeah, go see Dunkirk, and not Spider-Man, unless you have a girl with you. Right? Like, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. We'll catch everyone next week. Thanks for coming, Mike. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.